Let me open us with prayer. Lord, you are enthroned amongst the heavens. And we, your servants, your children, are here upon the earth. And we come asking that you would feed us with the bread of life. Lord, we thank you for your Son. It's in his name we come, eager to come in your presence through him, through his death and resurrection for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. On June 3rd, 19, sorry, 1888, Ernest Thayer published the following words in the San Francisco Examiner. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then with, when Will, the writhing pitcher, ground the ball into his hip, defiance flashed in Casey's eyes. A snarl curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the dun sphere flew, but Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two. Fried! Fraud! cried the maddened thousands, and an echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer had fled from Casey's lips. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and little children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. In the famous words of Casey at bat, of the haughty and proud Casey, his overconfidence vividly portrays how pride comes before a fall. This morning we're coming to a similar story of pride coming before the fall. We see the rise and fall of Haman. To briefly recap where we are in Esther, there's a Jewish man named Mordecai who's raised his orphan cousin Esther in the Persian capital, Susa. They live in a foreign capital, even though they're Jews, because they've been exiled from Israel because of their rebellion against God. And though Esther was an orphan, she became the queen of the empire. And yet, she has hidden to this point her Jewish identity. Along with this, Mordecai, we've seen, won't bow down. He won't give honor to this man Haman, the second in command. Now, Haman was an Agagite. He's a sworn enemy of Jews. And so this tension arose because Haman deceived the king into allowing an edict to be written that called for the Jews to be destroyed killed and annihilated once this decree was issued the jews all mourned and mordecai sent a message to esther saying you need to go talk to the king about this well esther replied well this is illegal and this is not just some idle threat when you look at pictures of this time or drawings There amongst the guards was one guard holding an axe in his hand. If you came into the king's presence without his request, then you could be put to death unless he lowered his wand. Not only that, 
but the king hasn't requested to see Esther for 30 days. So this is illegal and impractical. Why should I go, Esther says. But then Mordecai replies saying, don't think you'll be safe just because you're the queen in the palace. And perhaps you've been put there for such a time as this. So we ended last time seeing that Esther called on them, called on the Jews to fast and pray. Saying, fast and pray and in three days I will go. And so we pick up today with Esther chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 1 and 8 because there we're going to see her wisdom and courage. If you have a bulletin, you can follow along the outline as we walk through these various parts of the story. So Esther 5, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So here we see Esther on the third day. The third day of the fast, she goes, she puts on her royal garments, and she comes to the king's court. And the tension is high because we're wondering, what's going to happen? Is the king going to lower the scepter? Is she going to be killed? But the king delights to see Esther. He lowers the scepter, spares her life, and asks her what are her desires. He realizes she's not just coming by to say hi. Someone who's going to risk their life to come before him must have something heavy on their heart. Now, we shouldn't take his statement up to half the kingdom literally. It might be as though you have a free day and you say to your kids, whatever y'all want to do today, we'll go do it. Well, if they go, well, we want you to buy us a car, you're going to go, well, you know that's not what I meant. It's a figure of speech. He's saying, look, I'm extremely generous, Esther. Basically, anything you want, I'm going to give it to you. Ah, you have had favor in my eyes. But Esther, she pauses. She doesn't tell her ultimate request. Instead, she says, well, I'd like you to come to a banquet tonight that I prepared. Now, why does she do this? Well, consider what she's about to ask the king to do. She's going to ask him to reverse an irreversible edict that he had unwittingly approved. If she wisely knows that she needs to do this in the way that the king doesn't look foolish or bad. Not only that, she's taking a major risk because she is going to be showing that she is Jewish. And when she does that, the court will know and then Haman will know and her life will be on the line again. On top of all this, the king stands to get 10,000 talents. He's not going to easily want to give up that sum of money just because someone asked him to stop. And so she's considering, how can I approach this man in a wise way to get this done? How can I win the favor of the king? 
And as we saw last week, we see here again the two sides of the coin of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You know, what does she do? She first turns to God. God is the one who's going to have to act. We need to fast and pray for three days. But then she doesn't say, well, we fasted and prayed, so we'll see what happens. No, she takes responsibility and she takes wise course of action. She puts on her best clothes. She makes a plan. She makes a meal. And so she's doing all these things, realizing I still have a responsibility to do what is normally humanly wise for someone to accept the words that I'm saying to them. It's not one or the other. It's both. God is sovereign and we're responsible. And we need to hold both of those in full tension. You know, as people who emphasize God's sovereignty, we have to be careful that we don't minimize our responsibility and the need for wisdom. Let's think about evangelism. Yes, God can and does mean many people to Christ through amazing ways. However, that doesn't mean that we should expect that God will normally bring people to faith in Christ without people going and talking to them. You know, like Esther here or the story of Nathan the prophet, when he goes and talks to David, they both considered, how can I wisely convey this truth so that it will be appealing to those who hear it? I'm not talking about manipulation or changing the gospel in any stretch, but using common sense ways of what is going to make this person have an ear to what I'm going to say to them. How can I love them and care for them so that they hear my words, not as me getting guilt off my chest because I need to share the gospel, but because I love you and I want you to hear this wonderful and serious news. And none of us would expect we're going to catch fish as we sit in our living room. So we shouldn't expect that people are going to come to faith in Christ through our church if we all just sit in here. We should expect that we need to go out and we need to share wisely the great and wonderful news of the gospel. Just as Esther planned and thought, how can I share this news with the king? Well, here we see that Ahasuerus and Haman, they do come to the feast. And during the wine, the king says, well, what's your request? Just like a friend may invite you to coffee say hey can we get together i want to talk to you about something and after a while after you've had your drinks you finally push back and go whoa what's going on what's on your mind what do you want to talk about but esther again pauses and goes well can you and haman come back one more time for another meal and so at this point of the story we think oh okay well tomorrow night we're going to hear what happens and so you expect the next part of the story to be the next night and yet again we're thrown into the battle of Haman versus Mordecai. But this is really only a battle because, as we'll see in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 5, Haman has unsatisfiable desires. So let's read verses 9 through 14 of chapter 5 and see Haman's unsatisfiable desires. Esther 5, beginning verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor Trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman comes out. He's so joyful. He's just been at this great feast with Queen Esther and no one else but the king. But then he sees Mordecai in his mood. It abruptly shifts. It changes. Mordecai won't bow to him. He won't honor him. He won't even fear him. Literally, the word is Mordecai won't shake before him. He knows Haman's power. He knows the edict Haman had enacted. But Mordecai is not afraid of any mere human. And Haman, his anger is about to overflow. It's about to burst. But he dams it up. And he goes home. And instead he calls his wife. He calls his loved ones. And he tells them all the things he has. Hey, I've been promoted more than anyone else. All my wealth. All my sons. Everything. Even the queen only favors me. Yet, one rebellious man runs it all for him. He isn't satisfied being the second most powerful man in the entire world if Mordecai is alive. And so his wife and his friends, they have a great plan. Well, just have Haman hung. If you can get the king to kill all the Jews, you can get him to hang one. That's no big deal. So he goes and builds the gallows. You know, Haman has it all, but it's not enough because he has unsatisfiable desires. You know, the Bible uses another word for ultimate desires, and that is worship or idolatry. Like Haman, we can often determine what our idols are by examining our emotions. You know, think about when you get really irritable and angry. What is it that makes you so upset? It's probably connected to something that you have made too important in your life. Or what is it that you say, if only I have this, then my life will be really happy. Your life's good, but if I have to have this, and once I have that, then life will be what it should be. Well, if you need anything besides God to really be happy, you have made that your functional God. That is your idol. You know, Haman's idol here is public recognition. And when he's on the top of the world, everyone's bowing before him. Well, then life's great. But if just one person refuses, he gets thrown into discouragement. You know, the sad irony of life is we can often look around and see other people's idols and we just laugh. Look at them wasting all their money, throwing all their time into baking a bigger car. Oh, what a waste of time. That's so dumb. Oh, look at all them throwing all their time and energy into a career, sacrificing everything for promotions. That workaholic, that's, that's such a waste. And yet, we don't see how our desires and our idols are ruling our life. We don't see how we can be chameleon-like, always adapting to those around us because we crave their approval. And the challenge really is that for most of us, our idols are not some big thing. It's not like we're having a big adulterous affair. We're scamming the IRS. It's the good things God has given us that slowly grow in our heart from a good thing to something that becomes God in our life. Let's take something very intangible that might control us. Take, for example, a parent. Now, it's a good thing for a parent to want their child to appreciate them and love them. That's a good thing. Every parent wants that. And yet that can grow, so that becomes what makes the mom and dad happy. And if their children aren't appreciative, if their children aren't expressing love, then it crushes them. 
Well, what can that lead parents to do? Well, we've seen it. Well, if I discipline them, they're going to be really upset with me. So I'm just going to let that slide. Well, if I don't let them have this toy they want, they're going to be angry and I want them to love me. Now, no one ever sits and consciously thinks this, but that's how it plays out in our life. But the sad irony and twist is any idol never gives what it promises. Because what happens with that child who the parents are fawning for their approval? Will they spoil the child and then the child becomes less appreciative and so they love and appreciate the parents less? And then they come actually to despise the parents. When we pursue our idols, we actually ruin them and are never able to get them because they are false lies. Idols will never satisfy us. They were never meant to. Only God will satisfy all of our desires. He and He alone are what we were made for. You know, His approval is what matters. So, yes, it might hurt. It might hurt deeply when your kids look at you and say, you hate me. Well, my other friends have this, but you won't give it to me. No one says, oh, that's wonderful. But because we know our authority as parents is under God and we want to please Him, our goal is not to please our children. We can live with that hurt because we're living not for our children. We're living for God alone. And in that, God often tries to wean us and test us. Do you really love me and me alone? This is the great story that we see of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, Abraham longed for years for Isaac. And then he gets him. This one son who will be the heir. But then what does God do? He puts him to the test. Do you love Isaac more than me? And he has to be willing to sacrifice his love for his son for his love for his father. Because God is wanting us to know that he and he alone will satisfy us. Tim Keller writes about that incident and he said, God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, Now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your only son from me. But how much more can we look at the sacrifice that God did through his son on the cross and say, Now we know that you love us. For you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. When the magnitude of what God did for us dawns on us, it finally makes us possible to rest fully in him. And that he can be our heart's desire. That's what Haman should have done. His friends should have said, well, Haman, this is ridiculous. You have all this stuff. You just recounted us everything you have. And you're going to let one thing ruin your day, ruin your life? You know, he, had, he should have done what Esther did. Esther went from being an orphan to being made the queen of the greatest empire. And she was willing to say, I will let that go in order that I might be faithful. You know, thus, Haman and we have to repent of these desires that grow inordinately to become our idols, become our functional God. Yet as we see next in Esther 6, Haman is unwilling to die to his desire but it ends up destroying his life. And all this is going to happen because of the folly of pride, which we see in Esther chapter 6. And I'll read it beginning in verse 1. It says, On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they are read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, 
Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the man, then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman said, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely will fall before him. So that very night, as Haman is plotting, as he's building the gallows, the king can't sleep. So the royal records are read. Now, these could have been read for many reasons, but to me, this seems like the type of thing you read when you really want to fall asleep. Let's read a history book that walks through every single detail of what's ever happened in the kingdom. Yet it was no accident that he couldn't sleep, and it wasn't an accident where they chose to read. God was directing them to read this, to read of how Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot and then was rewarded with nothing. You know, Mordecai had done something that saved the king's life, and this was a glaring oversight. You know, assassination attempts, coups, they were quite common. And so the king would generously reward those who delivered him from them. You know, one historian, Herodotus, tells that a man saved King Xerxes' brother, and he was made governor of a city. Well, if that was done for the king's brother, what should be done for when the king himself is saved from an assassination. Well, God so directs events that the very moment Haman comes in to ask how he can, if he can, hang Mordecai, the king is going to ask, what should I do for the one I want to honor? There's this divine irony going on throughout this story. And there's even an irony because before he knows, before Haman knows who this man is, he starts talking. It's the flip of what he did with Ahasuerus. He didn't tell Ahasuerus, the people, who they were. And now he doesn't know who it is. And he is tricked. Well, Haman's so proud, he thinks, well, well, the king wouldn't want to honor anyone more than me. So he sets it up how he'd want. I've been dreaming of this day when I look like the king. Well, how do I look like the king? I'm on the king's horse. I got the king's robe. And everyone is bowing down to me. Haman's been dreaming of this day for years. He didn't even have to think about what he was going to say. I know exactly. And so Haman spells it all out. 
And then King Ahasuerus says, that's great. Go do that for Mordecai the Jew. You know, Haman was so blinded by his pride, he couldn't even think to ask, well, who's this for? Why are you doing this? It's all about me. It's all about me, so let me tell him what I want. And so rather than this being the day he dreamed of, this becomes the nightmare Haman had always feared. You know, here we're seeing this divine irony that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. We think those people have a right, so to speak, to be prideful. Well, they're going great, yet it's only leading to their downfall. Now, as I think about how Haman communicated this to Mordecai, I imagine there is some awkwardness and weirdness for a minute. Hey, um, Mordecai, uh, you need to get on the horse, and I'm going to put this robe on you. (laughs) Yeah, right, Haman. I'm not bowing before you. We've made this clear. Just just leave me alone. I'm not going to do it. No, seriously, I I have to do this. You've got to get on the horse, and I'm going to lead you through the city, telling everyone this is the one the king delights to honor. Haman, come on. Come on. Let's just go home. I'm not bad. No, I I have to do this. And so he has to do it. He has to go around proclaiming to everyone, this person that I wanted to kill, you need to honor him. And so he goes home in shame. But notice, what did Mordecai do? He just went back. He sat at the king's gate. He, he responds how we should when we're honored and praised by humans. We should realize it's great when it comes, but it's going to go away. Just take it in stride. There's nothing about this that will last. You know, any reward on earth, even the idol or pursue, will not last. Every treasure will tarnish and fade away. But the amazing thing is that the honor that God promises us, the reward he'll give us, will never go away. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's never going to go away. It's undefiled. It's never going to tarnish or get worse. It's unfading and it's kept in heaven for you. Better than Fort Knox. Better than anywhere that could be guarded. God's rewards will last. Haman, though, he recounts to his family, his loved ones, the wise men, what happened. And they say, if this is one who is of the Jews, you have no hope. And so they quickly whisk him away to the last feast. And this leads to the last section, Esther chapter 7, where we see a real cliffhanger. Esther chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. While they were beginning at the end of chapter 6, while they were talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said, Esther, well, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, Let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is nothing to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy the wicked Haman. 
Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So here we have, for the third time, the king asks Esther, Queen Esther, what do you want? What is your request? And this time, Esther replies using the king's word of a dual request. Because she asked for her life and she asked for the life of her people to be saved. Because they've been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Her words are perfectly matching the edict of destruction that was given in chapter 3, verse 13. You know, Esther adds, look, if we'd merely been sold as slaves, I wouldn't bother you, O king. You know, you're important. You got too much on your plate. But you're going to lose the queen who you love. This, this hurts you, so I came to let you know. You know, again, we're seeing Esther is being very wise and judicious with her words. And she's walking this delicate balance of noting something's wrong, but trying to not implicate the king. And you can almost imagine Esther's fear right after she says this. Well, what is the king going to say? Oh, yeah, I know about that. I didn't really care. Sorry. Can we have some more wine? That's what we did last time when he did the edict. Let's just have some more drinks. It's just a group of people. No, but we see right away he acts in rage. He asks, who is this man? Where is he? He's been blinded. He doesn't realize he put his own seal upon this edict. She was giving the words that he had, quote unquote, signed off on, as we would say. And so when she points out that it's Haman, he gets enraged. Now notice, she could have very honestly said, well, you and Haman did this. That would have been true, but you can't fix everything at once. And she's trying to wisely walk this balance. Look, this foe Haman, he did it. And so here he's the blame. And so the king rises and he goes out in the garden. And I can imagine now he's starting to connect the dots. Oh, so that's what Haman was after that one day. Oh, I did give him my signet ring. Oh, that's going to look bad. What can I do? But I love Esther. I can't allow this to happen. But Haman used me. I'm going to get 10,000 talents. What am I going to do? And I can't believe he'd do this. And so he comes in and does the king... Use this opportunity, convenience. Well, hey, this looks bad, so I'm going to charge Haman. Or does it really look, is it confusing that it looks like Haman's attacking the queen? Well, either way, Haman is told to be taken and hung on the gallows because the eunuch informs the king of that's what Haman had made for Mordecai. You know, this story has irony after irony after irony. And this one is probably the richest because the exact instrument that Haman had used for his enemies is going to be used on him. You know, he had wanted everyone to bow before him, but right before his death, what does he do? He bows before a Jew. He has to bow before Esther seeking for his life. 
And I think one of the biggest lessons we glean from this part of the story is that God humbles the proud and He exalts the humble. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, one man describes pride by writing, Pride is when human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him. It's when we're focusing on our own abilities, our own talents, and we want the focus and the glory all on us. You know, pride is a focus on self. Now, we often think of prideful people as people who go around boasting all the time. Well, look at me. But pride is often also shown in self-pitying people. Well, how do they have pride? Well, they have pride because it's all about me. Because woe is me. My life is bad. I don't have talents. I'm no good. Isn't my life horrible? It's all about me, me, me. It's a reverse twisted form of pride. It's the, all of the mirrors, everything focusing back on, look at me. And here we see Haman. He's living this life of self-exaltation. He craves everyone literally bowing down before him, fearing him. If he doesn't get it, well, he's going to pout. He's going to rage. And we can often be little Hamans running around, wanting everything to be about me. I want it to go my way. I want things to honor me. And yet, this is very dangerous. And God uses strong language about how he views pride. For example, 1 Peter 5, 5-6 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. you know, God opposes the proud because in our pride, we want to rob Him of His glory. You know, we want to seek the glory that should go to God and focus it on ourselves. So thus, the contrast with pride is always humility. Humility is saying, it's not about me. It's about serving you. It's about putting you, and not just you horizontally, but you vertically, God first. Pride focuses on me. Humility focuses on you. And yet pride's very subtle. It doesn't often come out and go, well, I'm proud. It masks itself and comes in little ways that we often can't see. One man, Stuart Scott, has written an excellent little book called From Pride to Humility, and in it, he describes different manifestations of pride. He gives 30, but here's 10. You know, one way we know we're proud is if we have a lack of gratitude. You know, a proud person thinks, well, I deserve that. We know we're proud when we're quick to anger. Because a proud person is focused on their rights. They owe me. Third, we know we're proud when we have an inflated view of our importance, of our gifts, our abilities. Or, fourth, as I said just a few seconds ago, we know we're proud when we're focused on our lack of gifts and abilities. It's that subtle nature that still says it's all about me. It's about me. Well, fifth, we can know we're proud if we have to do everything perfect. We're perfectionists. Now, on one level, that's good. We want to do everything for the glory of God. Do have excellence. But if we're honest, isn't sometimes our striving for excellence because we're worried what those people are going to think about what we did. That if no one else was going to see it, maybe we wouldn't be as perfect. We're living for what others, not God, think of us. A sixth form of 
pride being manifested is when we have to talk too much. There's no topic we aren't worthy of sharing our opinion on. There's no one who doesn't need to be corrected due to our wisdom and knowledge that we can share with them. We feel the need to always correct. Seventh, pride is revealed when we're consumed with what other people think about us. I remember early on at the church where I felt called ministry, I'd go up and maybe read the scripture. For the rest of the service, all I could think about was, did I read it right? How did people hear it? Because the service wasn't about me. But yet, that, that's all I could think about. Hey, Sarah, did, did that sound good? Did, did I read it okay? And for the rest of the service, rather than worshiping the Lord in a worship service, I had my own little worship service about me. Pride says, what do all y'all think about me? Not what all y'all think about the Lord. Am I just a reflection for Him? Eighth, our pride is shown when we're unteachable. Proud people don't need to know anything. They already know it all. Ninth, pride is shown when we lack compassion for other people. Instead, we often have sarcastic, hurtful things to say. I would never do that. Boy, aren't they dumb. We're always biting comments towards either others. And tenth, pride is shown when we're blame shifting. We rarely say, I was wrong. Period. No buts, no ands, no ifs, maybes. Period. I was wrong. I don't have to say this. I don't say that. We rarely ask for forgiveness because I didn't do anything wrong. I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't. Pride is shown in our lack of blame shifting. By not saying, will you forgive me? I was wrong. In period. Full stop. Waiting for them to say, I forgive you. And so that partial list, I don't know about you, but reveals the way pride has its tentacles around my heart. And it's the dangerous place that I need to repent of and say, God, have mercy on me because you oppose the proud. And there's so much pride that ekes out. You know, so we must humble ourselves, repent. Now notice the goal is not to seek low positions. You can have a high position. Esther was the queen. You can be humble in the highest position. You can be prideful in the lowest position. God is not so concerned about the circumstances of where you live, but how you live out in those circumstances of your living and dwelling. And many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis' works. One that I really enjoy is from his series, Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in there, there's a young boy named Eustace, and he's a very self-serving, prideful boy. And he torments everyone around him. He drives them crazy. Well, as you know, if you've read the books, there's this magical world, Narnia, and he goes with his cousins, Edmund and Lucy, into it. And they're on a ship, and everyone on the ship is driven crazy because Eustace knows it all. He's never been on a ship, but he can tell them how to sail it. He can tell them what to do. And finally they go, and they put down anchor at an island, and they go on the island, and there he wanders off, and everyone finally goes, Whew, we can have some peace and quiet. But he wanders off, and he finds this cave. And in the cave, he finds piles and piles of jewels. And in his heart, he thinks, this is wonderful. Now that I'm rich, I'll be able to tell everyone what to do. But then he puts on a bracelet. And as he lies down to take a nap, something happens. Because when he awakes, he is now a dragon. Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard, with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart's heart, he had become a dragon himself. And so Eustace wakes up a dragon. First he's scared, but then he has all this power. It's wonderful. But then he realizes it's so isolating. 
He doesn't really want to kill his cousins or anyone else, but he can't be near them because when he breathes, fire comes out and he'll set the ship on fire. He can't sleep near them because he's too loud. He can't talk with them. And what he'd longed for, power and control, he got the greatest he ever wanted. And yet the idol he longed for ended up destroying him. You know, his desires were his destruction. Well, the story goes on and finally Aslan, the Christ figure, comes and he tells Eustace, take the dragon skin off. And so Eustace goes and takes his claws and he rips the layer off. But there's dragon flesh underneath. He says, do it again. And he rips. And there's dragon skin under again. He says, do it again. He rips again. And there's dragon skin under again. And finally, Aslan says, I will have to remove it for you. And then the story says, Eustace then says, I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And we began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and I turned into a boy again. Lewis is showing us, he's giving us a picture of the horrible nature of sin and yet the redemption that has to come. You know, our sin is much worse than we ever could imagine. It destroys us more than we could think. Eustace thought, if I could just get power, then life would be great. But it made him into a hideous monster. But it wasn't the solution. Like, okay, well now go fix yourself. Okay, start being moral. Start doing good things. Start telling yourself, no more pride. I'm stopping the pride. It's gone. No, Eustace couldn't get rid of it himself. He needed the painful removal of one who had to get all the way down to him so it hurt. And that's the way it is with our sin. We wouldn't sin if we didn't love it. And as it's ripped away, it hurts. But the pain is for a moment as God rips away our sinful desires and puts new desires inside of us. He turns us from beasts into young boys and girls again. New, fresh hearts. You know, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps. He gives grace to those who humble themselves, who say, I can't help myself. I can't do it. Your humility was seen so clearly in Jesus in the passage read earlier because Jesus humbled himself. He not only took a human form, but he went all the way to the cross. He went to the cross because we can't transform ourselves. We can't remove the dragon of pride inside of us. He had to die to take and rip off the dragon to take it out from us. And thus, what did God do? He exalted him above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Humbling yourself brings honor. You know, Jesus is so much greater than Esther. You know, Esther, she was kind of culturally offered half the kingdom. Jesus was offered all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow the knee to me, Satan said. You can have it all. More, way more than half of one kingdom. And yet Jesus said, no, I'm going to sacrifice all that. I'm going to be faithful to the Father because it's not about me. Even though I'm going to have to take the cross, it's about you, humility. I'm going to serve the Father. You know, Esther came in on the third day of the feast just hoping that the king would save them physically. 
Jesus rose the third day so that the golden scepter is now lowered and we all can come into God's presence. Not because the scepter was lowered because the queen looked pretty, but because Christ died in our place. That his blood purchased our acceptance into his throne room. So we can now boldly come. And so God calls all of us to bow the knee humbly. To bow in humility to the one who in his humility gave his life for us. The reality is we're all bowing the knee to something right now. It's, it's not God the Father through Jesus Christ. You have idols in your life that you're pursuing and you're saying, you're going to give me life. And yet none of those are worthy of your devotion. None of those will give you what you really want. So won't you bow the knee now? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We can joyfully do it now. Knowing the one who gave himself for us, who humbled himself. Let's pray. Lord, we delight in your son's humility, that in his humility we can come before you. O Lord, the pride in our hearts is very deep, and we ask that you would, by your grace, rip it out, that we would mortify it, that we would long to humble ourselves so that you might be exalted. That the focus would not be on us, but it would be on you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.